Psalm 17, verse 15. Um, man, today we've got, what, what is that all about? North Shore graduation on Sunday morning. When did that happen? Our high schools are now holding their graduation services on Sunday morning. Oh, well, I'm glad you're here. Look at your name. You beat me to my punch. You look at your neighbor and say, I'm glad you already graduated. (laughs) Amen. Amen. David said, as for me, I will see your face in righteousness. And I shall be satisfied when I wake in your likeness. He could easy, he could say the, 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 turn that around and just say it from another perspective, and the, the the text remains every bit as true and accurate. He could say, "I will not be satisfied until I awake in your likeness." We'll look at somebody next to you and say, "I'll be satisfied if I can wake up in likeness." Hallelujah. Father, I pray that everybody here today leaves better than they came. Help me to do a good job preaching this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Shake hands with two people before you're seated and say, you look stunning this morning. Did you have have some work done? Lose a bunch of weight? Good Lord, you look amazing. That's so what I want to talk to you about today is, is the pursuit of likeness. I'm taking a risk this morning, and I understand, ironically and tragically, tragically ironic, that in churches, it's almost predictable that when you're going to just preach a straight-up message about Jesus, people will turn you off early. Because there's so much other stuff we want to hear about. This means your turn. You say amen or oh no or oh no. That 7.30 crowd, y'all wore me out this morning. Y'all have to make up for it. Simply meaning that there's, there's, it's easy for people to get defensive when you talk about, um, all that Christianity really should be in our lives because sometimes it comes across as, you know, we're tearing down and, and, and trying to take away stuff that we enjoy in our lives that to us, it's part of our faith, part of our walk, our Christianity. And rightfully so, right? You, you know, we, we talk about, listen, I, I'm a third generation Pentecostal boy, man. My grandfather was a church planter all through West Texas. I was raised scraping the bubble gum off the bottom of the church pews when I was three years old, you know. I, I've been in this thing all of my life. I love the culture of the house of God. I love the culture of the Christian community. I like the language that we speak. I like everything about, I love the fellowship. I love being at church three or four times a week. When we when I was a kid, that was, you were, the carnal people only came three times a week. <laughs> the spiritual ones, you were there four or five times a week. I mean, Sunday morning, back on Sunday night, Monday night prayer meeting, Tuesday night choir practice, Wednesday night Bible study, Friday night youth, Saturday morning visitation, Saturday night prayer, come back Sunday morning and ex- <laughs> 
I, I, I mean, I love being in the house of God. I love all of these things that, that have become part of the culture of how we do life as believers in Jesus. But the, the thing that we have to be so careful of, and what I'm so, uh, in recent months and the last few years, as I've been spending more time, I incorporated into more of my messages, my preaching in the places that I'm at, I, 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 I'm paying more attention to social media and the effects of it and this narcissism of our culture. Um, it bothers me. I don't know if, I, if I'm the only one. Maybe it's just I'm just too old for it. I'm not that old, but I do remember life before there was such a thing as cell phones. Isn't it weird to say I, I was I was around before Facebook was even thought about? But you know that's <laughs> and Irvin, Pastor Irvin's older than I am. But it, it, <laughs> you know, the, but but the idea of of we really think that the world cares what you eat three times a day. <laughs> Relax, I'm not going to chop jump all over that and chop it to pieces, but. Um, Unfortunately and tragically, the narcissism that has become the way of life for us. I mean, we, we wouldn't think of having a good meal somewhere without a selfie and a picture, a close-up and a cute, catchy phrase and post it on Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. And then we got our phones set so that anytime anybody that's any of our friends says something remotely interesting, we get an alert. An alarm goes off on our phone and we... we We'll drop what we're doing. We'll walk out of a meeting. We'll, we'll walk out of church <laughs> to go look at our cell phone only to discover that somebody, you know, was it black Angus for the first time in their life and took a selfie of their grossly well done steak instead of medium rare, like it's supposed to be. But nonetheless, so that, that my point is the self-centeredness of, of, of our culture. It's not that this stuff is terrible. There's nothing wrong with taking a selfie for heaven's sake. All the guilty ones just said, amen. Those of you who just, you know, just, just say amen. Anyway, it's nothing wrong with that stuff, but, but if, but the perspective from which you do it and, and, and so forth can tell a lot about where your mind is and where your, your whole paradigm is in life. And, and, we don't even know, as Pastor mentioned a couple weeks ago, uh, a couple messages ago, that we don't even know. Sociologists and, and behavioral experts are telling us we're not even going to know for another 50 years the full extent of the devastating effects that our narcissistic cultural devices today are going to have upon the human race and our inability to have meaningful relationships, our cognitive abilities, on and on it goes. Point is unfortunately, is that narcissism and that kind of narcissism, I'm not saying that in a clinical kind of perspective, but that kind of narcissism that we see displayed in, you know, the reality of our daily lives, social media, what have you, that has become the culture of the church in the sense that most everything we do toward God is motivated by something about us, Right? Never mind the scripture says we worship God because he is good and because his mercy is everlasting 
and his truth endures through all generations. All of those are realities that have nothing to do with you. But if you get in trouble, that's when you really worship. When you need something, that's when you go after God and you go after him hard. You'll come to church for heaven's sakes and shock the world four Sundays in a row. And maybe take Pastor Steve up on his, you know, his, his shameless plug to try to get you out on a Wednesday and come to a Wednesday night every quarter. You know what I'm talking about. So not only is, is, is that kind of narcissism, it has shaped us so that we are so self-conscious in our, in our approach to God, then we who deal in the matters of the word and have to address that, we find ourselves being pulled into a perspective where we have to also present things in the same context of narcissism. In other words, I'm aware as a preacher that if I don't build into my messages and I go back into them and cut some of the fat out and try to, you know, put in the benefits. I'm aware that when I preach a message, if I have not let people know two or three ways that whatever it is I'm preaching of benefits your personal life, I run the risk of being tuned out and turned off before I even get started. Because if I can't show you what I'm preaching, what it has to do with you, or how it benefits and blesses you, then it's almost like I'm wasting my time. And so my point is, is I didn't come today to tear anything down or strip anything away. I just came to hopefully lend my voice and lend my thoughts and my words that the Holy Spirit can make a shift in perspective and arrest you and shake you. Tell your neighbor, why is he screaming already? And disturb your life. Come on, that's a good word for it. Look at your neighbor and say, God's getting ready to disturb your life. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will disturb your life so that you get a fresh glimpse of what the main thing is really supposed to be. Because it's not so much about, you know, you could, back to the finishing my point about the, um, you know, the, the defensive thing. You go, well, look, I'm not really doing anything in my life that's wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm at church three or four times a week and I hang out with godly friends. We go to the movies once in a while, have dinner. And, you know, I, I, I give, I'm a worshiper. Oh, I'm not talking about, you can take all the activities of your life, the greatest majority of which tie in and fit nicely within the church experience and still have some things way out of balance and not be able to enjoy the benefit of what the word says we should enjoy. In the sense that everything and anything that is, that is designed by God to be a secondary consequence of his primary purpose and pursuit for your life, even if it's a good thing, it can cause you to come up empty over and over and over again. So you can get into this rut of doing things that are godly things and churchy things and, and you know, Christ-like kinds of things. And they still, they lose their ability to do in your life what they really should do in your life. 
and people find themselves getting to a place where they go to church three or four times a week and they attend a prayer meeting on Thursday, right? Pastor Bob, still Thursday? And they're in a small group and they join the choir and they do all these things that are all activities, but somehow or another they've been drawn away because of the self-centered motivation and the things that should be secondary consequences that complement a powerful and majestic and mighty thing going on in their life continues to make them come up empty. I got your attention. Simply Jesus. David said, I won't be satisfied until I wake up in your likeness. Here's what he meant. I'm not going to be satisfied. I'm not going to be content. I'm not going to get in a place where I just coast and everything is methodical and routine. I'm not going to get sucked into a way of living. I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to be satisfied until when I walk into a room, they don't know if it's Jesus that walked in or if it's me. Because Jesus is not just a part of my life. He's the wheel in the middle of the wheel. He's the center of my life. He's the one that without which nothing works and certainly nothing else matters. Polycarp. And let me just, before I quote Polycarp, because sometimes we quote people and the the significance of quoting people is, we don't know what the significance is other than the fact that what they said is true and it's interesting. But, but when you read some of the writings of the early church fathers called the, the early, church, uh, uh, early church apostles, the, I'm going to use overly simplified terminology to explain that. They're interesting reading. There would be, for example, uh, Clement of Rome. There would be Ignatius of Antioch. There would be Polycarp, the first bishop of Smyrna. And then there would be Ignatius of Heropolis. To qualify, those are the four main ones. To qualify, here's what basically that means. It means that they were early church leaders who were directly mentored, discipled, and appointed by one of the 12 apostles. But here's what it also means. It means that Jesus had long since been gone and ascended to the Father before these guys ever came on the scene. So their words, what it helps us understand is 100 to 150, 175 in some cases, Years after Jesus is long, is long since dead and gone, it helps us to understand how certain ideas and theologies have evolved or what things have remained the same. Historically, Constantine gets credited for bringing deity back to Christ and, and all that stuff. I don't want to go down that path because I'm not a huge fan of Constantine, but nonetheless. So what it shows us is we can look at the 12 apostles, right? And we go, well, of course, of course they're that intense. They sat at the feet of Jesus. They walked around the earth for three and a half years with him. They stood there while he was being crucified. These are the men that were, that were privy to, to his ascension. They were the guys standing there when the angel of the Lord came and said, Why stand you here gazing? This same Jesus that you see taken up will come in like manner. These are the guys that were in the upper room when a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind breathed in and filled the house where they were sitting. Of course these guys lived in Intense and passionate. But 
we can look down another hundred years and we can see some of these guys whose writings are not inspired words, so we don't treat them that way, but they do have an impact because it helps us understand that a hundred years, 200 years after Jesus is gone, there are still men and women that are shaping and leading the church that are willing to die for Jesus. They never met in the flesh. Everything was still all about Jesus. Polycarp says this, now may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It sounds like Paul writing. And the eternal high priest himself, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, build you up in faith and truth and in all gentleness and in all freedom from anger and forbearance, steadfastness and patient endurance and purity. And may he give to you a share and a place among his saints to us with you. To all those under heaven who will yet believe in our Lord and God, Jesus Christ, and in his Father who raised him from the dead. Ignatius says this is only one physician who is both flesh and spirit, born and unborn, God in man, true life in death, both from Mary and from God. First subject to suffering and then far beyond it, Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at your neighbor and say, some things never get old. Now, better yet, look at the person on the other side of you that was not your first choice to turn to. Look at them and say, some things can never be allowed to get old. Because when your perspective gets shifted, then you get, I think there's a laziness that is attached to Christianity today. And it's based upon, or it's a response to, it's a self-centered response to, unfortunately, to a truth. We know that we are made the righteousness of God by faith. I know that I'm standing before God in righteousness because I've clothed myself and I've put it on. I had nothing to do with that. I know that there's nothing I could do to get God to love me more. I know there's nothing I could do that would make him love, love me less. I know the Bible says that I am seated currently in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I get all of that. What I don't want those truths to do is turn me into a lazy bum that doesn't do anything Because just because something is promised to you is no guarantee. You cannot make the assumption that just because it's promised means it's automatically going to be manifested and realized. Eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. And yet, most people will live and die and go to their grave never having experienced the totality of all that God had earmarked for them. Look at your neighbor and say, you got to do something. <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, this such a fascinating interview on 60 Minutes. Daniel Day-Lewis was preparing to play the role of Abraham Lincoln in the movie. And in this interview, and I quote, he says, I immersed myself 24-7 in learning everything I could about the character." I immersed myself in information about Lincoln, reading everything I could find, talking to the foremost experts on the man. For a year, I dressed like Lincoln. I walked like Lincoln. I even raised the pitch of my own speaking voice to sound more like Lincoln. Not just when I was on the set, but all day, every day. That's a message right there, but we got to keep going. To the extent that was possible, I became Abraham Lincoln. At the end of the interview, he's asked what it was like for him now that the filming was over and the movie was getting released. And he, made, he said this, I quote, 
I have never loved a man like I loved that man. He paused for a moment with tears in his eyes and he said, and God, I miss him. Think about that for a moment. It's a Hollywood actor saying, the character that I took the time to immerse myself in took over me. He goes on to say, when I would get up in the morning and go make myself coffee, I had to remind myself, you're Daniel, not Abe. The movie was done. Filming was over. It's out in theaters. And people that know me have to tell me, hey, hey, normal voice. Cameras aren't rolling. I would to God that that simple phrase right there get a hold of every one of us today. That the very character of the one that we have decided and chosen to immerse ourselves in takes over. Look at your neighbor and say, he's got to take over. The Holy Spirit has a role in us and it's not just tongues and goosebumps. It's likeness. Ephesians 2 speaks of this, talking about likeness and being conformed to the image. It says, if so be that you have heard him, not of of him or about him. It says, if you have heard him. This is written after Jesus has already long since ascended. But he's telling us that the voice of the Holy Spirit, first and foremost, before it's about miracles, before it's about tongues and excitement and goosebumps and chills and everything else, the Holy Spirit and the voice of God in you through the Holy Spirit is primarily focused on one thing, to bring about likeness. To render you to a place. It's not hard for people to identify you as a Christian. I'm talking about going another dimension beyond that. You can put a Bible on your passenger seat. Wear a Christian t-shirt. And say certain words. Talk in certain language. And people are going to know. Bumper sticker on your car. I'm a uh, CT. I don't know if we Do we got bumper stickers? No? Maybe we should get some. I don't know. I mean, they can look at you and go, yeah, he's a Christian. He goes to that church. But listen, it meant something different when the Bible says they were called Christians first in Antioch. It wasn't an endearing term. It was a mockery. It was an They thought it was an insult. And as life happens, usually, if you just handle it right and ignore the, the evil intent behind it, insults turn into compliments. It meant to be an insult. It meant in, in, a, in a sarcastic tone, little Christ. They would look at the Christians or the people of God in Antioch and they'd say, look at those guys. They forgot who they are. He don't even got his own identity anymore. He's all wrapped up in trying to be like, talk like, walk like, be just like that one Jesus. <laughs> look at him, little Christ. That's what I want us, that's what I want my life to be about. I don't want to just be recognized as, well, I go to this church. I'm, I'm one of the pastors at this church and ministry and, and this. I, I want people to scratch their head and go, I don't get this. I, it's, I, I think it's Steve, but I'm feeling something totally different. It, it, uh, I'm not running out of words. I'm pacing myself. So let's, okay, let's talk about likeness. Well, first of all, look at your neighbor and say, the voice produces likeness we've all seen the pictures of the long-haired jesus with a little lamb draped over his shoulder 
And appropriately so, we connect that to the passage of Scripture that says Jesus was willing to leave the 99 and go look for the one. How many of you, don't raise your hand. I feel like I'm setting you up. But the fact is, is most of us have heard messages about Jesus. That, that should be our attitude, right? Jesus was willing to leave the 99 because he loved the one so much. So that ought to be our heart. That is not the case in that passage of Scripture. Are you honestly going to tell me that 99 are not as important to Jesus as one? That's not even good math. That's just ignorance. He's not, oh, I love that one. He's aggravated at the one. Irritated because his knuckle-headed, hard-headed, rebellious departure has created a gap in 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 what was supposed to be the 100. And his commitment is to make sure the one, that's a whole nother message. Let me keep going. And so, so Jesus, you know, the, the, the picture, the image that we have is that he takes the lamb. And of course, historically, we know this to be how it happened. The lamb would keep wandering off and keep straying. And so what he would do is he'd take the lamb and break his leg. Not so the lamb would be crippled and have a hard time running off, but so that the lamb could not, for a season, the lamb couldn't move, couldn't get away. And he takes the lamb and drapes it over his shoulders and then goes back to leading and to caring for the 99. The ones that have enough sense to know, you stay with the voice of the shepherd because he leads us into paths, green pastures. But while he's carrying that lamb, the one lamb who didn't know how to follow the voice of the Lord, who didn't know how to stay with the program, he had his head right here, the closest he had ever been to the mouth of the shepherd. And for six weeks, all he can hear is the voice of the shepherd. Look at your neighbor and say, the voice. I'm not talking about the the Hollywood program, The Voice, that still shouldn't be called The Voice. But nonetheless, The Voice brings likeness. Adam walked through the garden in the cool of the day, and the Bible says at a certain time every day, the, the voice of the Lord came in as a breeze. Adam's intimacy, his intimate relationship was with the voice of God. And as long as he was listening to the voice of God, then it was maintaining likeness in Adam. As soon as he stopped long enough to listen to a different voice, he forfeited likeness. Let's get into that. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. It says he was in the beginning with God, and without him was not anything made that was made. Tell somebody Jesus was at the beginning. Later, Jesus said about this himself when he's praying to the Father. He said, Lord, Father, I pray that you would glorify thou me with the glory that I had with you before the world began. I'm not going to argue whether that's in physical form in, in heaven or the logos of God concept. But it doesn't really matter because we understand that anything that exists in thought form intensely enough, God said that's real anyway. Jesus said it like this. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you're looking at that woman and thinking about it, you already committed adultery. He goes on to say, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I'm telling you that if you hate your brother in your heart, you're already a murderer. You're judged as being that. Hebrews 11 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The point is, is that in God's kingdom, that which exists in constant Pervasive thought form 
is no different than if it had manifest. So the fact is, is that God makes man, he creates Adam in his own image and after his likeness. The, for years and years, we've heard that preached, maybe not you, I've heard it preached, that image, the image of God, or imago Dei in, in the Latin, is the same as conia fios, or the likeness of God. They're synonymous terms. It's like, you know, he just throws it out there. Let's create man in our own image after our likeness. And so when we preach about it and talk about it, we always bunch those together. That's a mistake. Image and likeness are not the same thing. The image of God refers to certain innate abilities, God-like similarities. We have the ability to reason, to accumulate and collect knowledge. It means that we have a creative ability and so forth. The likeness of God or konia theos, it means the similarity of character and nature and form. When Adam and Eve fell, Adam did not lose the image of God. What he lost was likeness. And here's the terrible, tragic irony is that he lost likeness in pursuing likeness. In other words, let me, let me back up. Let me say it like this. I really want to know what my purpose is. Why? It's not about you. I know, but I want to know what my purpose is. You sound like Adam. Not you. I'm talking about people from Nebraska. They're, they're weird. The condition Adam was in and the way he functioned and existed and lived his life is that he is in a place where he has dominion over all the earth. He's given the authority and the power to subdue it, to dress it. He is the guy in charge every day. He gets to hear and fellowship and intimately, intimately relate to the voice of the creator. To the extent the Bible says that God said, Adam, stand right there in that place in the garden. Here's what's going to happen. Every day I'm going to bring aspects of creation in front of you just to see what you call it. And whatever you call a thing, that is what the thing will be called. And so God leads a giraffe in front of Adam. And Adam says, ah, that looks like a giraffe. giraffe." Okay, God turns around and tells heaven, listen, all of you take note. From this day forward, that will be called a giraffe. That is likeness, where people can't even tell the difference between you. Because Adam was created with God-like abilities in the image of God, but he was created to look like, to sound like, to talk like Jesus that was still yet to be manifested on the earth. So the likeness of man refers to his similarity or his conformity to Jesus. And the enemy comes and says, how would you like to know for yourself? Zero it in, dial it in a little bit more personal. Find out what your your personal ministry is. (laughs) I'm being sarcastic, but that's essentially what he's doing. He's telling Adam, listen, you you know, on on a greater level of knowledge uh, and, and be able to know good from evil, instead of just resting in the likeness that he existed in. 
He's walking this planet and he is the pre-incarnate. He's the representation of Jesus who was still yet to come. All power, all authority, the character, the righteousness, the nature of Christ that was to come. It was all in Adam. He was as like God as anybody ever would be. And he fell and he forefooted. I'm going to tell you that any time you pursue pursuit and personal purpose outside of the primary function and purpose God has for you, you will risk forfeiting likeness. Here's what Romans 8 says. Romans 8, 28 and 29. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. That's where we end the verse because that's our focus. That's what we usually shout and dance and holler over, right? That's what we take solace and refuge in. That the things, the hell we're going through and all the junk that I'm having to face, God's going to turn it all around for good. And he will. Right. But keep reading, because what he's fixing to tell us is the whole purpose of man. He says, for whom he foreknew. He also predestined. Hear this right. I'm not saying that that this was not in the mind of God. But what I'm saying is, if we think back to God thinking about us and predetermining and predestinating us, predestinating our possibilities before the world began, if the best we can think about is when before the world began, God knew what kind of job I'd be working and God knew what kind of money I'd be making and God knew who I'd be married, all these kind of things. I don't want to think that before time began, when God had me in mind, that all he was thinking about was my money and my clothes, my family, my job, and where I would live. I would like to think that God was thinking higher level stuff. Thank God we have the word because we know he was. It says, who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You want to know the will of God for you? That's it. To be conformed to the image of his son. But what should I do? You don't need to know anything else. Don't focus on anything else. Because just as sure as you do, then the conformity to likeness is replaced by our effort and desire to excel at what should be a secondary consequence. And will if we keep it right. Look at your neighbor and say, you got to keep it right. <laughs> Every man is tempted when he's drawn away. We always think of that in a sexual, sensual kind of context. And it is true when he's drawn away. But Adam was drawn away, not by any kind of sexual temptation. What Adam was drawn away by is the voice of another. And who cares what the other voice was saying. It was not the voice he should have been following. Gloria, Dios. All right, so let's talk about the blessing of this, right? Because here's where we get to the point where I have carefully interjected into my message how this benefits you. Look at your neighbor and say, oh, good, I'm getting ready to hear how being like Jesus benefits me. Well, it does, because he's a good God all the time. <laughs> Amen? Come on, i got to hurry. I'm almost done. So, 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 
I, I'm going to skip that. You just, just, you, you may as well just surrender. You may as well just surrender. You may as well just, just give in and slide in under that yoke and let him prove to you that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Because here's the thing. You're not going to be able to stop this kicking and screaming one way or another. Jesus is going to be Lord over and in and through your life. The Bible says that the angel of the, the angel Gabriel came to Mary and, and praised her a little bit and complimented her on, you know, you're a highly favored woman and God has chosen you. And he says this, the Holy Spirit shall overshadow you and that which is conceived in you is of the Holy Ghost. Can I, t- can I prophesy something to you here? Listen, it's like Mary sitting there and the angel of God comes to her and something that she did not want and did not ask for came on her anyway. The word... Holy Spirit shall come upon you. The power of the Most High shall overshadow uh, you. The word in the Greek means to forcefully take one. The angel was not there to ask permission. Hey, God has a plan for you. What do you think? Here's the reality. Who cares what you think? I don't mean, I'm not trying to be insulting to you, but that would be good and a good attitude for some of y'all to adopt. You're conforming, but all to the wrong things because you're so concerned about what everybody thinks. And the reality is, is it doesn't matter what you think or what they think. The fact of the matter is the angel just came to give her notification. I feel like that sometimes like, God, what in the world? I did not ask for this. I did. I had my life planned out. I wanted a wife, couple kids. I wanted a good job, retire early, drive my, my, you know, my Mercedes, uh, 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 you know, get me a house, get it paid for and buy me a little vacation house in the Bahamas and just kind of live life, travel a lot. I didn't ask for this, but does anybody else in the building know what I'm talking about? Have you ever found yourself in that place where God, I didn't ask for this. This is not what I bargained for, but you're here. You're not going to get out of it now. You thought you just came to an altar and said, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm going to dance through daisy fields. It's all going to be. (laughs) Paul said it like this. That which has apprehended me. He said this. He said, brother, I count myself not to have attained. But this one thing I do. Look at your neighbor and say one thing. One thing. When the Bible says one thing, that's exactly what it means. One thing. He said, this one thing I do, I press. Everything about my life is moving, pushing. I press toward the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I've heard a hundred messages on what the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus was. Prosperity preachers talk about it. Well, it's the prosperity of God. Everybody else, whatever their ministry emphasis is, they throw that in there. The prize of the high calling of God. But that's not what, Paul, all, you don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to be a prophet. All you got to do is know how to read and don't stop. Because Paul answers his own question. He he gives his own definition. He said, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God. And it's like he says, and just in case you don't know what that is, let me tell you. He said, I have pursued and I have committed to apprehend that which has apprehended me. 
We used to sing this song in church growing up. Something got a hold of me. I'm really dating myself this morning. Something got a hold of me, right? I went there that night. I went there to fight. But oh my, that night. Really? Y'all never heard that? I went there to fight, but oh my, that night, God got a hold of me. That's what I feel like sometimes. Like, God, what are you doing? I didn't want it to this degree. This is not what I asked for. But like God says, listen, the Holy Ghost will overshadow you. That's a nice way of saying you don't have no choice in this. I know, I know. Oh, we got free will. I heard a bishop say one time, ask Jonah about free will. He thought he had a free will and all he got was free willy. That's not my joke, but I'm going to keep telling him because I think it's hilarious. Ask Mary about free will. I think the smartest thing you and I could ever do is get that whole crazy idea. I know there's a, there's a truth basis for it, but it, but a focus on that is destructive. Get that free will thing out of your head. I have been apprehended. Somebody got a hold of me. I got Grabbed a hold of when I was seven years old. I didn't know any better. I didn't know any other kind of life. I was sheltered. We couldn't listen to music that wasn't Christian. We couldn't go to the movies. If you had a television in your home, it was the devil. We were at church five days. I didn't, I didn't know there was any other such kind of life. I got baptized in water at seven years old and I got filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost and spoke with other tongues at seven years old. I didn't even have a chance to figure out if there's anything else. And when I grew up, got to be a teenager, I couldn't even go out and enjoy sin. I tried. You know what it's like. Paul said, I can't, uh, when I'm, when I'm, do the things I should do. That which is evil is always real close behind. But when I give into that, then the, what I should do won't let me alone. I'm telling you, has anybody else ever felt like somebody got a hold of you? You can't, you're not under your own control. You don't really, you do have a choice, but you don't really have a choice in the matter. The smartest thing you could do would just be to swallow that. That truth. And no. You're right. I have been apprehended. No wonder Paul at times felt like maybe it wasn't. If he had to architect his own life, he would have done it different. Because he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think I'm my own man. I think I got my own voice. I got, I, I'm in control of my own life, but I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells me what time to get up in the morning, what to eat for breakfast, where I should go, who I should hang out with, and who should be my friends. What, come on, somebody. You got to be consumed with this thing. I'm almost done. One more. It's me and you, sis. I'm going to preach right here. 800 people. I got one lady who says, yes, come on. You may as well just, you may as well just buy into this thing. God told Moses concerning the Passover. He said, listen, something's getting ready to happen. I'm getting ready to end 400 years of captivity and slavery. 
And you're going to be moved out of that, and you're going to begin the process of going into the promised land. Let me tell you how that's going to be marked. It's going to be marked by this. You take the blood of a lamb that's raised in your house, not out in the field. This is different than just a tithe offering, a first fruits thing. This is something that matters to It's meaningful. You take a lamb that was raised in your house for the whole year, and you take that lamb, kill it, Take the blood and sprinkle it over the doorposts and the gates and everywhere. Then you go back. You cancel all your plans. You're not going out to play ball. You're not going to the movies. You sit at that table. I know it sounds gross, but God said this. He said, you eat all of it. Not just the lamb chops, not just the flank or the shank. You eat all of it. God said, you got to eat its hooves. Jesus is our Passover lamb. You can't just... You can't just pick and choose. You can't just decide what parts of Jesus that you're going to align your life with. God said, you take all of the lamb. You eat his feet so you can learn how to walk like him. You eat his head so you can have the mind of Christ. You eat the eyeball so you can see like Jesus. You eat the tongue so you can learn how to talk like Jesus. You eat the mouth so you can learn how to speak like Jesus. Look at your neighbor and say, eat all of the lamb. get to come to the table of the Lord and just pick and choose. Uh-uh. You got to eat all of it. The great Dutch statesman and theologian Abram Kuyper said this, and I quote, he said, there is not one square inch in all the universe over which Jesus Christ does not say, mine. Psalm 24 tells us the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the whole world and all that dwell in, that includes you and everything about you. He goes on to say, I finish his quote. He goes on to say, that includes the thoughts in your head, the words on your lips, the steps you take, the books you read, the things you watch on television. Hello, somebody. The, the food you eat, the music you listen to. It is all to be placed in submission to him and made subservient to his glory. Steve, are you suggesting or implying that, you know, we don't really know Jesus? I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to tear anything down. What I'm trying to do is, is release the Holy Spirit to disturb your life this week and scream in your ear. I pray you can't go to bed. I pray you get good rest. He turns four hours of sleep into the, the effects of eight. But I pray that he keeps you awake till two in the morning every single night. Screaming in your ear, there's more. There's more, there's more, there's more, there's more. Look at your neighbor and say, there's more. There there has to be more. There has to be more. Whatsoever you do in word and deed, Colossians 3, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Word and deed are what they call spectrum terms, which means... There are two words that cover an entire spectrum. It doesn't mean just word and deed. What he's saying is whatsoever you do in word and deed, what he means is whatsoever you do before, in the beginning, during, after, whatever you do, period. Do all in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. The name of Jesus carries the weight of on the basis of or in the persona of. qualifies the action more than the recipient. 
Let me finish with this one. So here's Abraham. Uh, here's Abraham's son, Isaac. Isaac and, and his wife have two boys, Jacob and Esau. You know the story. Say amen. Esau's the older boy. He is in line for the birthright. It's legally, rightfully his. Jacob is the younger son. He's mean. He's nasty. He's a deceiver. He's cunning. He's a trickster. All these kind of things. But, man, there's something inside of him that we all like, don't we? Because the Bible says that when it came time, Isaac has lost his sight for the most part. And it's become apparent that he's getting ready to pass from this earth. That one of the boys has to get the birthright. It belongs to Esau. It rightfully goes to Esau. He's in line. That's the culture. That's the tradition that God himself put in place. The birthright goes to the eldest son. Jacob and his mother, though, Jacob has what I pray that all of us would have. That, listen, I know that I'm not in line for that. I know I have no business asking for that, but I want that. I know I've got a past. I'm not the one that's supposed to happen to. I've, I've, got, I've lived a colorful life. I've got scars. I've got a story to tell. I know that people like me don't end up in places like this, standing in the garden in image of God and in the likeness of God, but I want that. And so he gets with his mother. And, and Esau was a hairy guy. He was an outdoorsman. He smelled like the wilderness. And Jacob was not so much that. And so him and his mother went out and they killed a wild animal and put the skins of the animal on his arms, put the blood and the smell of the wilderness all over his body. And they walk in to the, to the room where uh, Isaac is. And, and, and he says, I'm here for my blessing. And Isaac says, that's funny. It sounds like Jacob, but it looks and smells and feels like Esau. Come here. And he lifts his hand and he puts on his head and pronounces the blessing that he wasn't in line for. He had no business asking for it. He certainly was not deserving of it. But because he had wrapped himself up in his older brother and faked his way through. Oh, come on, somebody. Faked his way into the scenario and tricked his father into believing that it was Esau. Hebrews chapter 2, 11 tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to be called our elder brother. And it's like this. It's like I come into God. The Bible says, know you not that you have put on Christ? I come into God's presence and I'm, I'm worshiping and I'm praising and I'm approaching him. And he says, huh, it sounds like Steve. But it looks like and it smells like. Your older brother. In my mind, when I was studying this week, at that point right there, I had this whole church shouting. That's a word of revelation, right? I had people running up here, living offerings on the stage. Yeah, I'm teasing. That's what the scripture says. That's why the Bible says, David said it like this, a rich man's money is his house, but the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it. In the name of Jesus, it's not just a clause that you put on the end of a statement or a request or prayer that you want to be taken seriously for. 
God, I want this, I want that, whatever. In the name of Jesus, like it's the magic wand that gives us passage and gives us right and access just because we attach that name. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you do things by the name of Jesus or with the name of Jesus. It says you do things in the name of Jesus. The, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it, not around it, not into it, but into it. So that when I'm standing in the place of praise and worship or prayer, petition, request, whatever it is, it sounds like me, but I'm in the place of, I'm in the persona of, I have clothed myself in my elder brother, Jesus Christ. gives me the ability to say, God, I know I'm not in line for this. I know I don't deserve this. I know I really have no business asking for this, but God, I want my blessing. I want my birthright. Come help me, guys. Paul said, I I do one thing. One thing. Pursuit of my life is lined with Romans 8. For whom he did foreknow. Did God think about me before time began? I believe that is the case. An infinite God that we don't even have the mental capacity to grasp. I believe that he thought about me. That he had me in mind. That I I was in him before the creation. Before the foundations of the world. Was he thinking so much about what kind of car he would bless me with? Was he thinking so much about this, that, or the other? Or was he thinking about me in the context of what I looked like with my older brother's skin on me? And even more so, he thought about me in anticipation of how the world would respond when I walked into a room having the likeness of my older brother and they can't really tell the difference. Is it Steve? I know Steve. But man, I'm feeling something else right now. I feel some shoot, power, some authority in the name that is above every name. Adam didn't value the voice and he He had his own idea of diversification, expanding. It caused him to listen to the voice of another and he forfeited likeness. Jesus came to show us what that likeness that he forfeited looked like. Now it's you and I. Having to make decisions on how we want to live the rest of our lives. The constant battle between, you know, I have some goals. I have some dreams. I have some things I want in this life. And and I know that it's God's good pleasure to give me the key. I get all of that. It's a good pleasure to do, you know, good things. And everything comes from above. And the Father of lights, I get all of that. Memorize those scriptures when I was 10 years old. I get all that. But it also seems obvious to me, evident to me in scripture that all those things that I would like to have and God would even like for me to have, it seems like the minute that I make any of those my focus, 
then I move away from likeness. No wonder the scripture says, don't take a thought about what you will eat, how you will be clothed and where you shall live. For God knows the things you have need of even before you ask. So you might, so, so don't, it's not that important to ask. What's important is seek first the kingdom of God. Seek likeness. Seek to be restored, conformed to the image of the Son of God. All these other things become secondary consequences.